This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today's episode is jam-packed, so let's get right to it. In the last segment of our HFMA annual conference preview, Nick Hutt speaks to panelists from a planned discussion about women in healthcare leadership. We've also got five steps healthcare organizations can take toward HIPAA compliance. And in a special report, Rich Daly brings us trends and developments discussed at the 20th annual Not-for-Profit Healthcare Investor Conference. That's coming up right now in Beyond the News. In mid-May 2019, not-for-profit health system executives and investors gathered in New York City for the 20th annual Not-for-Profit Healthcare Investor Conference. This conference, the only one of its kind, was sponsored by City, HFMA, and the American Hospital Association. It featured several days of presentations by a wide range of health systems on the challenges and opportunities they see in a quickly changing market. We connected with some of the hospital sector leaders, investors, and health system executives who attended the meeting to get their views on leading trends and key developments impacting hospital borrowing. Ben Clems, co-head of not-for-profit healthcare at City, noted some of the key hospital trends that have emerged in recent years. The velocity of large deals has really increased. In 2018, there were seven not-for-profit health system financings that were larger than $1 billion versus zero in 2000. Now this is in large part because the not-for-profit health systems have grown significantly. In 2018, there were 36 of these systems with revenues greater than $5 billion, including five at 20 billion or more. In contrast, in 2000, there were only two health systems with revenues over 5 billion and the largest was at six. So the health systems have grown and much of this growth has been driven by strategic activity. Another important trend that Clems noted was that not-for-profit health systems are increasingly issuing taxable debt. While the appetite for capital remains robust, it is now concentrated in areas of physician investment, IT, retail medicine, outpatient, and ambulatory, which are really a better fit for taxable debt. And how hospitals and health systems are investing this capital has changed over the course of the conference's history, said Rick Pollack, president and CEO of the American Hospital Association. Financing, capital financing for information technology had become a new priority 20 years ago. People really weren't talking about that. Uh, performance improvement, quality improvement, uh, moving from, from the volume-based system, moving from the volume-based system to the value-based system and understanding the risk associated with doing that, that has evolved and changed over the years. Uh, putting together clinically integrated systems and the development of systems um, and the importance of systems and the financial requirements for dealing with systems 
That has evolved over the years. Uh, another thing that has changed is as the field has changed, uh, the uh, concept of consumerism has been introduced into the whole healthcare arena. And we find ourselves up against new, in some cases, competitors that are entering the healthcare space that are incredibly well capitalized. Uh, whether it is the organizations that are buying physician groups, whether it's the Amazon, Googles, and uh, Apples of the world. So the challenges for capital uh, really have changed as the environment has changed. Those high-profile investments are critical, said Joe Pfeiffer, president and CEO of HFMA. But we haven't invested in cost accounting, and our ability to do costing in uh, healthcare pales in comparison to other industries like manufacturing, which leads to the fact that, again, the fact that we haven't invested in it, and and it is a complex environment, we just don't have the ability to do specific costing the way we should. The person ordering our tests, as an example, all too often does not know what the cost of that test or that procedure is that they're ordering. And that just never, that's unheard of in the manufacturing world. Jim Skogsberg, president and CEO of Advocate Aurora Health, who also addressed the conference, talked to us about the moonshot investments that his organization also is undertaking. Zero harm, I think, is an absolute moonshot. And, and uh, it's one that we're striving for. Uh, at Advocate Aurora Health, and, and we've made great progress, but that journey is not completed yet. Here's another moonshot, affordable health care. Now, I say that knowing full well that the definition of affordable varies significantly with various audiences, but that concept of making health care in America more affordable, I think, is a, uh, is a worthy uh, and, and, and a appropriate pursuit for our organization and for the industry. And then the last one that comes to mind, uh, and I don't have the right words exactly, but it's (laughs) what was coming off my lips is absolute impeccable or perfect service. Having an experience in our healthcare system that that absolutely delights the patient, the consumer, the family member, et cetera, that that to me, those are are a couple uh, uh, tasks that are going to keep all of us busy for a long, long time. You can check out the full-length version of the interviews used in this story at hfma.org forward slash city20. Give them a listen and check out our news coverage of the meeting as well, along with other information on the conference exclusively available at hfma.org forward slash city20. Thanks for listening. Where do you go for help deciphering the latest regulations? HFMA, of course. As a member, you have exclusive access to peer-generated articles that make sense of ever-evolving policy changes and offer practical advice for navigating legislative landmines. Not yet a member? Join now. Visit hfma.org join to discover all the benefits of membership. This is Nick Hutt, an editor at HFMA. At HFMA's 2019 annual conference next week in Orlando, a panel of women healthcare leaders will discuss their career trajectories and the paths that have taken them to prominent roles. Leading the discussion will be Cherie Kane, Vice President of Revenue Cycle with Community Health Systems, and Stacey Lee, a healthcare consultant and formerly a research analyst with PwC. Their joint research on leadership paths and career development will form the basis of the discussion at the conference. 
I recently had a chance to speak with Cherie and Stacy about their research findings and their personal career journeys. Cherie, who has a master's in healthcare administration and 35 years of experience in the industry, recalled when she became motivated to take her career path in a different direction. I started like so many directors in healthcare, uh, working at a hospital and just kept getting moved in from one position to the next. During that time, I realized that after 10 years of being patted on the head and getting a little raise and moved to the next problem, that I wasn't really going anywhere. So um, I kind of made a decision that I need to do something different. So I quit my job at the hospital. I went to work for United Healthcare, um, get that managed care experience. And during the next five years, I decided I was going to start my own company. So I did a bunch of planning to uh, start a healthcare consulting firm. So over the next five years, obtained some credentials, uh, kind of had to conquer, I would say, my fear of being out without a paycheck, right? So in 2000, I left United and I started my own consulting company and did that for 10 years. And then PwC hired me, which is where I met Stacy. I'm at the other end. She's beginning her career, um, but obviously trying to overcome the fears and those uh, uh, to accomplish something um, as running a running a your own consulting company for 10 years. Um, fortunately, nobody told me when I started that only like 3% of those companies um, even succeed. If I'd known that, I probably wouldn't have done that. But nobody told me, so I didn't know. And I succeeded in running my own company for, for 10 years before going to PwC. Stacy, who was at an earlier stage of her career, worked in public and community health before changing gears and becoming a management consultant at PwC, where she spent six years. She found the experience challenging, but also worthwhile. Initially, as a, you know, a public health person working in a lot of nonprofit environments and being really on the ground on a community level, transitioning to working for PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is you know, a very, very, very large global consulting firm as well as a tax and audit firm, I was not necessarily expecting to encounter the sort of professional and career challenges that come with um, working in that sort of environment. But looking back, you know, sort of in retrospect, and when you, you take a step back and you've had time to digest and process, you know, what were the lessons learned from that? The experience in that role really has helped build my resilience. It's helped me navigate sort of, you know, the underlying political layers of um, relationships and handling projects and working on a team. Those sorts of challenges were not anything that I really envisioned having to encounter when I was first um, interested and really dedicated to entering the healthcare field. But as a result, my lessons and my takeaways from that, I, I wouldn't trade it. It's been extremely invaluable. Two themes that Stacy touched on in that response, the importance of risk-taking and of resilience, stand out in the pair's research. As Cherie notes, they found that risk-taking comes in many forms. You have this entire perspective of going out, um, maybe choosing a career, choosing a, a degree, just because everybody else is doing it and just making that and just following everybody else. You have others in the, in the perspective that, you know, are more, I would say, like me. I, I take very defined risks. So I'm going to measure it. I'm going to define it. I'm going to map out a marketing plan or whatever action it is I'm going to take. And uh, what you see when you talk to the panelists and, and others is that everyone has their own threshold of what that risk looks like. And 
I think the thing that I think that's important is most everyone that we talked to that took a risk, it came out in a positive way. Something positive came out of that. And I think it's trying to convince those that are, I'm in this job, I can't do anything else, I can't get another job, is for those to be introspective, find out what it is that you want to do and take action and not be afraid to take action because most everyone that we've spoken with um, has had a positive outcome from whatever risk it was they took. Now, they may have taken that and taken another turn from that, but it led to something much more positive. Stacy points out that their research has found that levels of trepidation in the context of risk-taking naturally vary from one person to the next. Developing in three specific areas can make anyone more prepared to succeed at risk-taking. For the most part, people fell into two camps. The first one being that they're in the camp that Cherie alluded to that, you know, they are very prepared and how they can best handle or approach um, risk taking is to make sure that they've developed in three different areas. One being their resources, second being their relationships, and the third being their attitude. If you can, you know, continually develop these three different elements, um, you are best suited, if you will, to thrive in times of change or, you know, you're best prepared to take those risks. On the other hand, we had some individuals less, I will say, that fell into the camp of, you know, not necessarily being as prepared or intentionally prepared across those elements. They may have been otherwise, but their attitude and their approach was so positive and so confident that when they are faced with um, the decision to take a risk or an opportunity that they might not have, um, you know, foreshadowed, they were willing to, to take the leap because they are resilient or confident enough and they have the attitude um, and the persistence to really take it on fully without having to necessarily map it out and think it through. So it was really interesting to see that we had people fall into those two different camps, but at baseline, there is always that element of, of fear that our, our um, interviewees express, but the, the level and the severity, severity of that varied a lot. When you decide to take a risk and change course in your career, you may very well encounter various types of barriers. That's why the importance of resilience is a key theme in Cherie and Stacy's research and also in their respective careers. Resiliency has been, for my personal career, that has been, I'd say that's been the keynote. <laughs> And I think for for everyone, in order to be resilient, I think you have to have a passion and believe in what you're doing. Otherwise, you can't overcome whatever challenges you face. I know for, for my career, I do hospital transformations. And so every one of them is a challenge. And unless you're passionate and you get up every day and you believe in what you're doing, I mean, the some of the barriers that you face, you wouldn't be able to overcome. And I think that also helps maintain helps you maintain that positive attitude but i i think resiliency is it's about passion it's about believing what you're doing and i i think once that happens then the resiliency is there i mean i think that um you have the power to overcome those barriers as someone who's a little bit earlier on in their career my first i would say critical step was acknowledging and accepting that that resilience is is a clear characteristic of um, leaders that I not only think do a wonderful job, but that I look up to not only as a professional, but as, um, you know, as a person. So for me, really understanding very deeply that that's 
a trait that I want to work on was really important. And I think for me, it will be an ongoing um, process to develop that. And the, the times that I felt that I have really been tested and have really been able to practice this was just being outside of my comfort zone. And so I'm at a point now where I don't necessarily um, feel as anxious or fearful of, of opportunities or projects that are clearly outside of what I've done before or just totally outside of my comfort zone. And so I'm, I'm able now at this point to sort of welcome those and know that it's another chance to sort of develop my own personal resilience. But I would say with, really, you know, putting myself out there and meeting many, many different people and developing relationships with mentors and just expanding my network has really, um, you know, through those conversations and through those relationships, um, again, I would say the, the really critical point for me at first was to understand how important um, it is to, to develop your resilience. The panel discussion led by Shereen Stacy takes place Monday, June 24th at 1.30 p.m. and will be part of the Leadership, Change Management, and Organizational Capability cohort of sessions at HFMA's annual conference. For more information, visit annual.hfma.org. Seeking a promotion? Motivation for your team? HFMA online education and certification programs may be the answer. Discuss your objectives with a professional development specialist today by emailing careerservices at hfma.org or learn more at hfma.org slash promote yourself. Now we come to Fast Five, a quick hit list about a trending healthcare topic. The ROI of HIPAA compliance can be significant when considering the steep penalties associated with violations. Organizations that don't currently have a HIPAA compliance program can begin with these five steps. Designate a HIPAA compliance and security officer. Complete a gap analysis to determine the current state of HIPAA compliance. Develop and implement HIPAA policies and procedures. Provide HIPAA training to all staff members. Have business associate agreements in place with any vendors that touch patients' protected health information. These tips came from How to Avoid the Devastating Consequences of HIPAA Noncompliance from the May issue of HFM Magazine. You can read the article at hfma.org. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Beyond the News This Week was produced by Rich Daly. Additional reporting this week is by Nick Hutt. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler and Michael Shorbot. HFMA's president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. If you plan to attend HFMA's annual conference in Orlando next week, please stop by the podcast booth in HFMA Central and say hi. I'll be recording segments for future episodes and would love to meet you. And if you run out of old episodes on the flight down to Florida, don't worry. There'll be a new one out for your flight home on Wednesday. See you in Orlando. 